1: Hello and welcome to the Battleground Ukraine's Big Interview with me, Saul David and Patrick Bishop. Today, we're talking to a remarkable young man, Dmitry Pleshikov, co-founder and CEO of Osovol, a Ukrainian artificial intelligence platform that was set up after the full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine to counter the spread of Russian disinformation. Dmitry, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what you were working on when Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February 2022? Yeah, I'm a tech entrepreneur. Uh, I've been working on uh,
2: startups and building companies in the field of the AI for the past uh, around 10 years. Um, From Ukraine originally, most of my companies were either based or headquartered in Ukraine. And a few years before the full-scale invasion started, I sold my previous startup. And I've been building the R&D uh, center in Kiev for a public company focused on the development of the AI. And I had a contract for a couple of years. And a few months before the full-scale invasion started, my contract was about to end, actually. And uh, I had a lot of, uh, you know, uh, promising plans to take a break from business and work and maybe sit back and relax somewhere in a warm place. And <clears throat> I started executing that plan back in January 2022, uh, thinking that, okay, maybe it's time to, to get us some of the reward for the past activities. Uh, but then the full scale invasion started, and it obviously changed like my plans and plans of millions of people. And uh, what I realized pretty quickly is that first, like, I want to be somehow involved in the resistance and help uh, Ukraine maximize chances of victory. And second, uh, there is a huge need for technology in this war. So this war is maybe, unlike wars of the past, is very technologically advanced and AI is uh, like, uh, not the last thing being important on the battleground. And due to my background, because most of the things we built before, uh, they were related to data, data analytics. We realized that the battleground where like, my expertise, expertise of my team can be relevant, is the information battleground because it has to do with all the data ha- and it, the data is being populated real time it's being used real time and it's a super intense battleground from the very first days it became obvious that russians are not only attacking on the ground right and in the air but also online heavily trying to seed chaos seed uh, disbelief between people uh, panic and any kinds of counterproductive emotions using disinformation, using influence operations and stuff like that. And uh, so basically in uh, March uh, 2022, so pretty early on, we started doing something in that direction, which led us eventually, uh, more than one year after, to having a company focused on countering stuff like that with AI and working super actively with Ukrainian government.
0: Now, Dimitra, most of the people listening to this will have some rough idea of what you're talking about, but find it quite hard to visualize what it is you actually do. Can you first uh, start off by telling us what the threat from Russia constitutes, how it actually manifests itself? Give us some practical examples of how it is that Russian disinformation enters the information space and harms Ukraine's cause.
2: Yeah, it's a very interesting topic because Ukraine in particular uh used to be a good target for Russian disinformation and propaganda. And I think Russians thought this way. Because information-wise, info-space-wise, Ukraine used to be very connected to Russia. Just to give you a few examples, back in 2014-2015, the most popular social network in Ukraine was VK, which is a Russian social network, uh, allegedly controlled by FSB. So super tied to Russian government. It used to be top one. Then it like ceased to be the case. But it's an like a eloquent example. Top one messenger is Telegram, which is owned and like uh, controlled by Pavel Durov, who is Russian ex uh, VK CEO. There are a lot of rumors about is he or is not connected to Russian government, but at least Telegram is also top one in Russia, so it's very familiar space for them to operate. Uh, Of course, many people are Russian speakers, even if they speak Ukrainian, mostly they understand Russian, which again removes the language barrier. So culture, space, you know, a lot of influencers, opinion leaders used to be shared pre-full-scale invasion. So Russians had a lot of bridges or sort of channels to infiltrate. The strategy that they are using, as I started to mention earlier, I think mostly is targeting uh, disbelief, skepticism and... uh, Mistrust between different groups of people. I think even though they have narratives they promote, I would not say it's like that they promote, they stick to one particular narrative and try to convince someone in one story. What they're trying to do more is to push many controversial things in parallels to stimulate, you know, this skepticism among people. So they stop believing anything at all. They start to look at the world as a gray picture. There is no like black and white. There is nothing you can really trust Anything, even something you see with your own eyes might be doubted Like the government is bad, the army is inefficient All types of things that would uh, ruin your... Basically, that would ruin two things that make Ukraine so strong First is unity, Everybody's is like united So what Russians are trying to achieve, destroy unity Second, destroy the encouragement and destroy the belief in victory and uh, destroy the motivation uh, to defend. Uh, this way or another, you can destroy motivation using many tools. You can say, okay, your government is corrupted, so why should you fight for it? You can say, okay, you have no chance to win. Russia is so strong. You can say whatever else, and they are very creative and they keep pushing and pushing and pushing and trying to find the buttons to push, which will actually be, you know, reflect the vulnerabilities of society. So they're trying to find, okay, maybe this topic is something that will actually de- deunite them and that's pretty much uh, how it looks o- on a daily basis actually
0: how does the message actually arrive i mean what what form does it take can you give us a an example of of a uh, tactical disinformation intervention uh, that will illustrate the point
2: yeah uh, there's a lot of them one in particular i can share and that was the one that we actually countered so it's an interesting case study of how it like started and how it stopped uh, it happened in, I think, November, October, November last year. And that was a dis- disinformation campaign, like a classical one. And interesting thing about it, that it was cyber enabled. So they said that they were managed to hack an email or a data storage of Ukrainian officials and find their secret document, which they sort of leaked. And it was fake from the very beginning. But the document said that NATO supplied Ukraine with some blood for medical purposes. And the blood was infected by many viruses, like HIV and hepatitis, and other ones. And that Ukrainians figured out that the blood is infected, but unfortunately, like the blood was already used, and so there is a huge exposure. Because now, now many soldiers who were wounded might have been exposed to that blood, which eventually means that they might have been infected by super serious like disease because of NATO. So that was pretty much like the narrative they were trying to push through the leaked document, which they fabricated. How did it start? It started on the smaller telegram channels and communities which are in Russia. And in many cases, they do it this way. So they start small. And that's like a trial and error approach. Our colleagues usually say that it's very data driven. In a way, They, they put it somewhere, they see how it goes, and then they scale it out. They have many ways to scale it because they have networks, they have like affiliated people in different countries, including Western countries. They have coordinated networks on social media like Twitter, Facebook and YouTube, which are able to amplify messages. But mostly it starts in the Russian segment. And in that case, it started in a couple of smaller, less known Telegram channels. And then usually it starts there, then bigger influencers take over it and give it a a bigger push. Then it enters the, the Ukrainian info space Then it gets some traction in the Western world or Latin Latin America or Middle East. And then it gets like the global uh, exposure. Uh, And so in that case, we were able to track it at a very early point. Uh, When we first spotted it, it had only four instances of this publication being posted in four places, mostly smaller. And that's a good example of uh, how countering works, because when you're able to spot it early on, there were not yet not many people who saw that message. Ukrainian government was pretty quick in doing something about it. So we worked here with the Center Against uh, Disinformation at the Security Council of Ukraine. And what the guys did, they spotted this threat. They quickly prepared the report explaining the possible risk and what is it and what does it say. And they communicated to the relevant um, government body. In this case, it was the Ministry of Healthcare. And they managed to convince them to act super quickly because it's like an emerging threat and uh, the guys came up with a public communication which actually debunked this story so they told the truth and they explained what the reality is and that we actually never got the blood donated it, it never was the case and because our communication was quick and to the point and loud because it was amplified by, the, by all the ukrainian uh, like media and um, authorities it happened that there was no point for russians to keep promoting the fake because it was like debunked super early on and the story never took off It actually mostly stayed where it was in a couple of uh, communities and uh, it it never left, you know, to the broader, bigger info space. And that's a brilliant example of um, why time matters, because there are many, many stories where the reaction would not come that early and the exposure would be much larger and much broader. And to give you some color to that, like there are many narratives there that are around with which Russians are getting some traction, I would say. Let's say they keep coming back to the story that Ukraine is selling weapons on the black market. And so the idea is that like we are being donated or sent some arms, some weapons. And then the corrupted Ukrainians are sort of sell them to the certain countries. And then these weapons pop up here and there. And uh, Russians make big stories about it. And they keep coming back to this narrative from, from the very early days up until now. Every other month, they will do a small push to that because, as I understand, they see that there is some traction and there are some people who are willing to believe that happens, even though there are many communication that that's not true and checks and audits and stuff like that. And there, like, the volume is huge. The volume is incredible. We're talking about hundreds like, of campaigns happening on a quarterly basis. I don't remember the exact number. We calculated with our partners. It was a few hundred campaigns during the Q1 of this year, let's say. And some campaigns are smaller, some are bigger, but the nature is more or less similar to what I described.
0: Well, that was all very fascinating and thought-provoking. Do join us in the second half to hear what Dimitro had to say to us next.
1: Welcome back to the second half of this week's big interview with Dmitro Pleshikov, co-founder and CEO of Osval. This is what Dmitro told us. And can you tell us, Dmitro, how your relationship works with the Ukrainian defence sector? I mean, are you have you effectively, like a lot of Ukrainian civilians, been co opted? Are you now military or are you entirely separate but you're working in collaboration with and of course providing software for the defence sector?
2: yeah so we started as a volunteering organization back in march last year and that's pretty common in ukraine to be a volunteer that's i think the phenomena of this war also that this volunteering movement is really really huge at some point i think almost every every family in ukraine had a person who was volunteering actively doing something and there are different aspects so some brought um Uh, like vests or equipment or ammunition, some uh, helped with the humanitarian aid, some helped with evacuation and some helped with more high-tech stuff, like us like building the software or some people building drones and so on and so forth. So a lot of uh, prominent companies that are quite successful in Ukraine today, they started as a volunteering, spontaneous reaction to what was happening. And we are not an exception, so it started very spontaneously because, like me myself, because I had this entrepreneurial background, and my partner, we were pretty well connected uh, in Ukraine. We know we knew many people, and uh, the fact about Ukrainian government these days is that there are a lot of young, innovative people working there in different agencies, including Ministry of Defense, including National Security Council. There are many innovative, very like vision-driven teams, and we were in touch with those guys, and they started to share their pains. That okay, we have this huge exposure to russian propaganda and we don't have tools in place to be able to cope with that and we would love to because like there is a lot of manual work our capacity is not there and we started building like just based on the requests coming to us being an, like an independent but very informal organization we started to help them with the with those requests like one by one this case that case this organization that organization and at some point eventually we realized that what we have If we put it together it looks like a software platform already like which which has some pretty strong capabilities and starting from then we started to deliver it as a software and we transformed ourselves to become a company just as a side note we keep delivering software in ukraine pro bono because we think that's our contribution uh, to ukrainian victory but we operate globally now and uh, we sell it to partners to other organizations worldwide
1: yeah, just to follow on from that, because it, it seems pretty clear that what you've done here, although extraordinarily useful and important um, for Ukraine's cause in the war, it, it clearly has capabilities that are just as relevant to a peacetime environment or a seemingly peacetime environment. I mean, that, that is the case, isn't it? I mean, this, this sort of stuff is going to be used by, I mean, congratulations, by the way, Dimitro. it's astonishing what you've done in a relatively short space of time. But But this is going to be useful for governments in peacetime and organizations in peacetime, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, th- that's something we realized pretty early on that what's
2: inspired by war, not li- is not limited to war or military use case, and we don't even consider ourselves to be like a militech or military oriented company because that's a broad, like that's a technology for broad use. Basically, misinformation, disinformation, propaganda, influence operations—they are all over the place. You can take elections as an example. It's fluted by that. You can take COVID as an example. It's like it's a, It was a huge eye-opener for many of us that our media are so easily manipulated. You take an organization, any public company is exposed to this risk. Any officer of a public company is exposed to this risk. So we're living in a world where everyone is pretty vulnerable because we are all living in this open internet uh, which can be manipulated. And so if you have assets that are out there those assets are vulnerable to these types of risks and these types of threats. Similarly to how cyber works, right? There are cyber threats that can attack your assets, your entities, your employee. Uh, pretty similarly, information threats and information threat actors can try to do the same. They can try to target at a different level. They can target your organization. They can target your society as a whole. They can target your nation. So what we are seeing in Ukraine, the whole nation is targeted, right? It's, it's a huge, huge risk and, not by the way, not just Ukrainian nation. We see that it also has a huge impact on the Western world, it has a huge impact on the global South. But in many cases, this information is much more precise, targeted, doing some smaller things. Just to give you one example out of military context, it was a pretty loud story recently. So some guys, they created a Twitter account, they bought this Twitter blue for eight bucks or how, how much does it cost? So not much. And they mimicked to be like a Bloomberg or a big well-known media. And they posted a deep fake image of an explosion next to Pentagon, or I don't know, Pentagon, I think, or White House in, in, in the DC. And what happened, so it's just one image, right? And it was, it was pretty easy to debunk that nothing happened there. And it, and it eventually happened, a couple of hours, everyone understood there was no real explosion. But the uh, public markets, stock markets, they reacted instantly. Or the huge dip which then regained but uh, the loss was there right and people some people were able to gain on that some people lost money on that and that's an impact of one small image which is disinformative which is seen by a malicious actor imagine if it's a more something more long-term something planned and something with a stronger intention to attack you in a broader meaning
0: on that subject, uh, Dimitro, have you formed any precise idea of who the players are in Russia who are organizing this campaign? Do you know, you know which organizations? Is it the FSB? Uh, is it the military? And do you actually know the names of any of the, the sort of leading figures in this, your kind of counterparts, if you like, you know, young, very, very technically competent or the rest of it on the other side of the fence?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I know that uh, our customers in Ukraine uh, know that to a very good extent. They know names of organizations, sometimes names of the people. To some of this information, we don't have access, like being outside. uh, To some of this information, we have access, but we cannot share it. But generally, on a broader level, right? yes, there are organizations there that are focused on this and not one. And yes, unfortunately, even young and creative people in Russia also participate in this. So it's not like these are old fashioned generals planning these things. Youngsters are also involved, which is uh, in a way disappointing because many, I think many people, especially on the West, they still have this expectation. This like a Putin's war and like the young creative and well-educated people, they are of course are against, they have nothing to do with it. So not necessarily the case. a uh, Few facts that are like publicly available not exactly on our field, but on, a, uh, on on something similar is that PVC Wagner, they even organized hackathons in Russia. Imagine what a Oxymoron is that, that PVC Wagner and like super malicious evil organization creates a hackathon, something very like high-techy, nice and hipster-ish. And people participated there, young guys, 19, 20 years old, and
1: they built some tech for those Wagners and uh, they felt all right about that. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned Wagner. I mean, we've been speculating for so long, Dimitro, on the role that Prigozhin and Wagner playing in this war. And it, it's got particularly murky over the last few weeks, of course, with with the, the mutiny, and now the, the reality that Prigozhin, far from being punished, is actually in Russia, uh, negotiating with Putin. Um, but going back to something that Prigozhin and Wagner are alleged to have been involved in, and that, of course, was interfering in the 2016 US presidential election. Given what you've developed now, if that had existed in 2016, and the Russians, had uh, sorry, the Americans had had their hands on it, would they have been able to identify that disinformation campaign and combat it?
2: I think to some extent, maybe to a large extent, uh, because one of uh, the capabilities that we have and that we are actively using is uh, the attribution of activities that happen in English-speaking Western segment of Internet, let's say Twitter or media, to things that originate from Russia, like to Russian narratives or to Russian threat actors that distribute stuff. And uh, we saw evidence that that happens. uh, And there are many coordinated networks out there that are actually can be traced back to Russia this way or another. And of course, in Russia, Prigozhin had a media empire, but there was a lot of Sources actors, channels, whatever telegrams associated with him, uh, even in Russia they are not uh, their media landscape is not unified there are different subgroups and Prigozhin was a major significant player there, and uh in many cases you can trace back what's happening like the narrative, the story, the distribution to that origin uh and that's important and also that's important to do it early on. I think we are still we i mean not us as a company but generally we as a society or we as a open, democratic world, we're still not effective at tracing that. There was an article in Washington Post, not for long time ago, and they said that only around 1% of bots is being taken down on uh, social. There is uh, an alarming trend that like trust and safety teams in big tech companies are being laid off because of the economic uh, reasons. And so I think we are opening the door this way because we are putting like less efforts to combat that while the trend of the activity is growing and uh, that's why we think that the need for the technology like ours is, is present and we need to collaborate also like going back to your question would we be able to spot that that depends not just on the technology that's a complex process right you need to have different stakeholders willing to get the result you need to have tech which is one component but that's not the main component. You also need to have like motivation on the other side and things like that.
0: Dimitra, moving on to, if you like, the kind of offensive side of, the, of of your operation, does do you actually have one? Are you in a position to actually get into the Russian information space and construct some counter narratives there that, if you like, kind of preempt the Russian efforts? This is something that we get lots of questions about from our our listeners is what can we do to actually change russian minds they seem to be fed this constant diet of lies misinformation distortions etc
2: yeah uh, so firstly uh, we do not do any offensive things that's like the uh, position of our company we are building defensive assets and defensive technology and that's it so we're not involved in uh, in the offensive side of things but just to give you my opinion from what i saw and uh, what we experience First, it's a very challenging task because generally offense in the closed types of societies is more difficult than in the open societies. The web is nothing like our web, right? Let's say VK, any platforms that they have heavily moderated, heavily controlled. Uh, But more importantly, the narrative is controlled, right? The narrative is controlled in a centralized way and people are exposed to the information over such a long period of time in such a concentrated way that if you infiltrate it with your one, two, three messages, it doesn't make any big difference. Like the confirmation biases are that strong and generally the effectiveness of that machine being run for 20 years. It's not something you can overcome in a week or in a month. So the only way is to do something long term. Though uh, what gives us hope in that regards is that it's not just information, but it's a combination of multiple things. It's like... It's the reality that happens plus the information. And if you look at the reality over the past year and a half, since the full-scale invasion, it's a sequence. It's a chain of, uh, you know, the events that would not make Russians really proud, right? You want to get Kyiv during three days, and then you fail. Then you want to take Kharkiv region, and then you fail. And then there is a huge huge counteroffensive pushes you back. And here and there, constantly, their narrative kind of gets further and further from the reality. So this mit- mismatch is growing. And this growth is an opportunity for us because that's what makes their whole story vulnerable, right? Because as a person, you can live in the illusion, but the further illusion goes from the re- reality, the easier it is to like, to crash the illusion. So I think mostly what we're trying to do is uh, to open their eyes to to, to highlight highlight the facts and highlight the stories that would, uh, that would prove or show that it's not like what they believe in, it's different. So b- being outside, I have this opportunity to get connected to people on the West, companies on the West, organizations on the West, fundraise and make sure that this venture runs, runs successfully and can give back on the Ukrainian side. We have a huge commitment to uh, Ukraine in many ways. So we deliver software, in a pro bono way. So we're not benefiting from it. Quite the opposite, we're trying to give away. Our team is in Ukraine and we are hiring in Ukraine. We give preference to candidates who are based there because we want to contribute to the economy and we want to support people and give them opportunity to uh, sustain their lives. Uh, We help people when needed with whatever they need. Like when the electricity shortages are in Kiev, we are willing to give them stuff to sort of produce electricity and maintain their uh, workability, personally for myself, like my family is in Kyiv. And uh, of course, when anything happens there, any shelling, any explosions, it becomes very personal. And uh, many people think that it's not that bad there as it used to be. So there is like a general understanding or consensus that it was super bad, like, let's say, February, March, April last year, but it keeps improving. It doesn't feel like that, though. Because let's say we take this uh, May or June this year. in Kiev, shellings happened every other night, sometimes every night. So now my family spent every night in the shelter, sleeping uh, in the concrete, very cold room. It has nothing to do with the normal or okay uh, life.
0: Well, that was a real eye-opener for me, Saul. I must admit, I'm pretty uh, ignorant about all this kind of stuff. And what I got from that was, first of all, a very clear indication of what strategically these disinformation campaigns are trying to do, basically blur the contours of reality, create disbelief, undermine unity, try and excite a climate of despondency. And and, uh, it all sort of became quite clear to me what all this energy that is expended is actually setting out to do. So that was, for starters, that that, that was a very valuable bit of uh, enlightenment for me anyway. And also,
1: wasn't it interesting, his point at how Ukraine was such fertile territory for this sort of disinformation, Patrick, you know, partly on language grounds, partly on, on the grounds that the fact that Ukrainians, which I didn't know, certainly pre-2014, were heavily embedded with the use of Russian social media. In other words, they were getting their information from Russia in the first place, and it can't have been that difficult, certainly at first, for the Russians to spread this sort of chaos, to create, in uh, Dmitro's words, that sort of grey world where nothing is clear any longer, anything is possible in terms of stories that are being told. Can you believe what your own government is telling you? You know, And uh, are they just as likely to be up to mischief as the enemy?
0: That's right, isn't it? I think, you know, by and large, that is the world we live in now, where there is a climate of of disbelief. But this, of course, this has been around for a long time, hasn't it? I'm reminded of that old proverb, a lie is halfway around the world before the truth can get its boots on. It's attributed to various people from Mark Twain to Ernest Bevin. But uh, here is, uh, you know, what Dimitro is trying to do is counter that, you know, stop the the lie in its tracks before it gets very far and uh, he seems to be pretty successful in doing that or at least has some very good tools for doing that but i'm always i must admit i am still quite surprised at what people are prepared to believe you know that story that the russians put out about the infected blood nato donating infected blood to ukraine I mean, the first thing you're going to say is, well, I thought NATO was meant to be our, our, on our side. Why would they be? But apparently, you know, no lie is outrageous enough not to be worth a given an airing.
1: And one really encouraging aspect of this whole story, and we've heard it with other interviewees, Patrick, is this extraordinary upsurge in involuntary Uh, work that the civilian population of Ukraine in defense of its own country has been prepared to offer the government and the military. I mean, I asked that question how deeply embedded he was with the military these days. And, of course, he isn't. He's working in partnership with the government. So there's this kind of blurring of the lines. We're used to distinguishing, aren't we, in our work between, you know, who is who comes under the sort of military hierarchy and who is assisting. But in, in Ukraine, it's clearly a lot more complicated than that because a whole nation now is working in one sense or another to try and defeat this existential threat.
0: Yeah, it is, it is a, clearly a unifying experiences isn't it uh, and there's and there is a great integrated national effort going on but dimitro did make the point that you you know rather alarmingly you're seeing the same thing on the other side we associate young people with progressive ideas with liberalism and that, particularly those who are in the world of tech but he was uh, i must admit i had a bit of a laugh <laughs> at the thought of this wagner sponsored hackathon for <laughs> young techies <laughs> on the on the russian side there we are but but having said that, Saul, I was encouraged by what he said about, you know, the Russian misinformation, disinformation campaign. And he made this very fundamental point, I think, about the dangers of a very mismatched narrative between what is being spun, what, what lies are being told, and the reality, inescapable reality, that no amount of manipulation can actually disguise. And he says, the further you are, Uh, from reality the easier it is to crash the illusion and you know we've been seeing this process haven't we maybe we're being a little bit optimistic but you know it seems to me that that is the way things are going in russia and that the whole kind of edifice of of lies may one day come tumbling down hopefully not in the too distant future
1: all right, that's all we have time for, for the big interview, but do join us on Friday as usual when we'll be analyzing all the news and answering listeners' questions. Goodbye.